So this morning I'd like to um, reflect on the third foundation of mindfulness, which, if our plan is going correctly, no one has yet spoken about. Is it? So this third foundation of mindfulness in the Pali is citta. And I think it's kind of important to sort of naturalize this word because it refers to both mind and heart, a place where in Western vocabulary we tend to be more dualistic and think of a psychological world and then an emotional world. Whereas Chitta refers more, more widely and more inclusively to all of the psychological slash emotional states that we experience. So the mental states, emotional states, we see how they pass through our consciousness constantly like weather patterns. Some of our emotional states, mental states, make very brief visits, and then they pass away. Some of the mental states we experience, of course, linger much longer. Some of the emotional states we experience rather take us by surprise. It can be quite calm and then experience a sudden burst of irritation or annoyance or anxiety. Some of the mental states are very, very familiar. We know them very well. It's almost like they're woven into our kind of personality view, we might say. States of aversion, states of contractedness, states of anxiety... Now, there are, of course, a very wide spectrum, a very wholesome, very skillful emotional and mental states. Emotions of metta, of kindness, of spaciousness, of calmness, of appreciation. We touch these in our life and we touch them in our practice. Sometimes we become very aware of how these more skillful, helpful emotional states are truly rooted in the practice we develop. It is almost as if we are more collected, more gathered in our being, more mindful, more awake. And it allows for many of the lovely states, emotional and psychological states that are possible for us to emerge and to be present. And we really taste their loveliness. But we also experience within ourselves, of course, many, many quite difficult and quite challenging emotional states, psychological states. They're they're not reserved for our meditation practice. In fact, what we see in our meditation practice is very much a microcosmic view of the mental and and emotional states that really predominate in our life. Some of them I spoke about the other day in the form of the hindrances. But we see that the contracted states of resentment, of jealousy, of worry, of agitation, of um, aversion 
the list is actually quite, both quite long and not so long. And the list is also of the difficult mental states. It's really quite universal, a quite universal list. It's very important to bear this in mind. When we are lost in one of these difficult emotional states or mental states, of course we're bound to think that it's only us, you know, and it's a particular imperfection of our mind. Forgetting how... You know, the Buddha was very good at spotting the universality of emotional states. It doesn't make the painfulness of those states necessarily too much less. It certainly is not uh, an invitation to be dismissive of them, saying, you know, well, everybody does this, you know, everybody gets angry, you know, everybody gets anxious. But it can serve to lighten the load a little bit and not take them quite so personally. Remembering that many, many of the difficult emotional states, of course, are not personal faults or imperfections. They are really manifestations of confusion. And our practice is really dedicated to making that confusion much more transparent. What I think is very important to appreciate that, of course, you know, our emotional states, mental states, pretty much govern our lives. Both the lovely and the unlovely have a very profound effect, not uh, not only on our own consciousness, but in the way that they actually shape our world perception. The Buddha put it quite clearly, clearly saying, all experience is born of mind, led by mind, preceded by mind, made by mind. All that I am arises with my thoughts, and with our thoughts we make the world. We make the world of our experience. It was another Western philosopher who put it somewhat differently, saying, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. We can perhaps all learn to recognize that there is an emotional climate, a mental state that is present in all of our waking moments. There aren't really gaps here. There is always an emotional mental state present, not only in our waking moments, but as many people experience in retreats when their dreams often become much more vivid and more dramatic. We also see the emotional and mental states present in our dreams. And if we are to understand how our world of experience 
is being shaped and constructed moment to moment, the hell realms, the heavenly realms, the moments of ease, the moments of suffering. If we're to truly understand that constructing process, it is really so pivotal to develop the mindfulness that can know emotional and mental climates as they actually are. Not bad, not good, not right, not wrong. But putting it in the context of this teaching, there are certainly emotional states that lead to struggle, to torment, to distress. We know this inwardly. And there are emotional climates and psychological climates that very much lead to the end of struggle and distress and torment. Central to all our experience is the climate of our mind. We perceive the world through the lens of our mental states. Think of this. If we're very anxious, doesn't the world look pretty threatening? If we're pretty aversive, we are very prone to highlight what's wrong everywhere. If there's an emotional state of kindness, we tend to be very allowing, more inclusive, more accepting. But we perceive the world, we filter the world in a way through these states of mind and we interpret them. We interpret those perceptions. We have a story about them. We place them in the context of what we've experienced in the past, what we imagine we will experience in the future. And of course then we react two perceptions from the basis, from the foundation of those emotional states. Think of some very simple examples of this. You know, if you're having, you know, a a difficult day, you know, a grumpy day, an unhappy day, an agitated day, and you're doing your best and you walk down the hallway and you decide you're going to really try and not to kind of just share of this grumpiness. So you you smile at someone in the corridor and they don't smile back. The perception then is, oh, that person's really unfriendly. You know, I was really doing my best. It's totally unacknowledged, you know. We can feel rejected. Oh, that unreturned smile is really saying something about me. So the interpretation part is is starting. Or that unreturned smile is really saying something about that other person. You know, they're basically a kind of hostile person, you know. Pretty unfriendly, pretty cold. You know, don't quite know what they're doing here, but, you know, that this is who, who they are. And, and then we react from that interpretation, don't we? Well, that's the last smile they ever get. You know, silence is going to break at the end of this retreat. That's one person I'm not talking to. You know, or, or we find ourselves kind of directing our, our actions, how we place ourselves. I'm not sitting at the table with them. You know, anyone else, but not that unfriendly person. So we start to see this whole kind of continuum from the perception being filtered through a mental state, the interpretation, what it actually, in attributing meaning to the perception, and then, of course, reacting from its foundation. Now, this, of course, goes on and on throughout our day. 
another day we could have pretty much the same kind of grist of experience but filtered through an entirely different state of mind. You know, we could be feeling quite content, quite happy, quite settled. We walk down the same hallway, smile, get an unreturned smile. But instead of this whole kind of stream of interpretation and reaction, something else happens. Oh, a person's very collected today, very concentrated. May they be well, may they be happy, you know. Same scenario, different experience. Just notice how much this is going on in the day, how much this is formulating our world. We can come into the meditation room for a sitting, see the bell sitting here. Ah, oh, if we're grumpy, no, I've done that too many times already. You know, who are all these slackers never pick up that bell? You know, it's their job. You know, it's their time. I'm not doing it. You know, next time I come in the home, I'm going to pretend I don't even see that bell. You know, I'm going to have eyes down. Another, another mental state, same scenario. We come, the bell's there. We're quite happy, quite content. Of course, I'll gladly ring the bell, you know. I like to contribute. I like to support my fellow practitioners. Just notice how much this is going on throughout our day, this kind of world building, this kind of world construction. A single thought, a single sight, a single sound. It's not just it's inwardly generated and then coloring the world. This is a two-way street. We see that a single sight, a single thought, a single sound can, of course, trigger a mental state. You're quite happy. You go for a walk at lunchtime. You see a rabbit dead on the road. Oh, there's too much suffering in life. You know, you can feel yourself switching into a different state of mind. You know, life is just suffering. There's so much misery, I can't bear it, you know. Then you go out for a walking period, you see a rabbit hop across the lawn, you know, and you're in that aversive mind state. But, oh, you know, suddenly it shifts into something else and you see a different mental state and a different world construction. You know how life is filled with these moments of loveliness, you know, and we just need to appreciate them. It's something I think is quite helpful to notice, and it's actually to quite notice how to notice how the difficult and the kind of more troubling, the more contracted mental states of aversion, anxiety, resentment, how these difficult mental states tend to be very prolific in the number of thoughts that they produce. There's a lot more story with difficult mental states, isn't there? You know, it can feel almost endless as we go into the past, project into the future, draw all kinds of conclusions, have certain ruminations, you know, or begin to obsess. Notice how difficult mental states are noisy. They're essentially noisy. They're just kind of thought generators, you know, image generators. Notice that the more easeful mental states, spaciousness, calmness, kindness, appreciation, inner stillness, notice how much quieter they are. 
and much less prolific. You know, we don't necessarily, we could do, but it's rather perverse, you know, have a mental state of kindness and then flip into thinking, you know, I wonder why I'm kind, you know. I wasn't kind yesterday. I wonder if I'll be kind tomorrow, you know. I mean, we generally tend not to do that, you know. If there's a moment of calmness, you know, we don't immediately sort of take hold of it and say, you know, something's wrong here, you know. You know, why am I calm? I'm not a calm person, you know. I'm surely... Not going to be calm. We tend not to do it. I mean, it can happen. It's a little perverse. We are quite ingenious in our capacity to inflict misery upon ourselves. But just generally to notice how more skillful, more helpful mental states tend to be much softer and much quieter and much calmer and much less productive. Now, we tend to be, believe our mental states as being kind of authorities that tell us pretty much the way things are. I mean, that is odd, considering how much in our own experience we see them change so dramatically. There is still this tendency to give so much credibility to states of mind as describing the truth of the world. Hmm? Um, we kind of believe that our mind is something like a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting things the way they are, rather than seeing that the mind itself is a central ingredient in creating the world. When we've come to that conclusion, you know, that life is basically miserable and depressed, we actually think it's the way things are. We talk ourselves into it. It's how things are. You know, the, the unreturned smile, you know, and that is who that person is. You know, we have given that authority outwardly just as we do inwardly if we have, re- you know, repeated mental states that are difficult. We create a certain self-description. So it is very important to see mental states as a process. They're not kind of static, they're not solid, they're not substantial, they are a process. So what we see is that mental states are part of a process, that they produce thoughts and images and conclusions that are essentially colored by the prevailing mind state of the moment. If you're very uh, feeling very aversive, you tend not to have thoughts of metta. If you're feeling pretty filled with kindness, you tend not to have a whole lot of judgmental thoughts. Instead, when there is aversion, notice how the thought patterns themselves, of course, tend to manifest or almost articulate that emotional state. It gives voice, you know, the thought patterns give voice to the mental state. And you see that there's this thread that's running through the states of mind that is aligned with the states of mind. But then those thoughts in themselves produced by a mental state, they turn back, don't they? So they turn back to actually strengthen the mental state. Notice how we can deepen aversion, deepen anxiety by having a lot of aversive thinking or anxious thinking. The mental state grows, it gets bigger. You know, it's being fed, it's being cultivated, so it gains strength or is strengthened 
by the thought patterns. Now, when the thought patterns turn back to strengthen the mental state, then that very strengthening of the mental state, it has the effect of creating more thoughts. So this is a very closed feedback loop. It's the way that we kind of paint ourselves into a corner, you know, or lock ourselves into a tiny cell in which there feels like there's no escape route. So a lot of our practice is actually contemplating this process, being aware of this process, being a more conscious participant in the way that our world is being created and fostered moment to moment. What we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. I think that for me this has always been one of the most kind of pivotal teachings of the Buddha that what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind, and the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. This is not a hard one to remember, but I think it is actually so significant to remember this. I mean, in Buddhist psychology, we work with this kind of very clear formula of understanding psychological process, of understanding world construction. That what we contact, we feel. We contact sight, sounds, body sensations, um, thoughts, smells, taste, touch. What we contact, we feel. What we feel, we perceive. Now these three, of course, arise so, so in such an interwoven way. Contact, feeling, perception. What we, what we perceive, what we contact, we feel, we perceive, what we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we proliferate about, uh, proliferate about, we dwell upon, and it becomes the shape of our mind. This is something I think really as, as you know, as more mindfulness begins to develop and some of these inner processes begin to slow down a little, this is something so much to be able to just begin to trace this within our own inner experience because there's something enormously liberating about understanding this process. Because it's really understanding that this is not like a terminal condition. It's not a life sentence. It's not a closed book. That we can learn to bring mindfulness in, in the ways that don't lead us to be locked within these constructions that then we hardly even know how to, wait, how to find our way out of them. So contact, feeling, perception, they're there. Notice when the thoughts begin to emerge, begin to dwell upon those perceptions, our relationship to them. Notice the proliferation. Notice how the mind is being shaped. Within that proliferation, there is often the shaping of the mind. Sometimes even in the perception, there is the shaping of the mind. Now, this is a pretty much closed feedback loop, this, this formula. Mental states producing thoughts, thoughts strengthening mental states, producing more proliferation. But I think there's another element that gets added in here, which is, is it's the killer element. You know, it's really the toxic one. 
Because you can see when you when we get caught in those closed feedback loops, you know, of aversion and aversive thinking, you know, anxiety and anxious thinking, you know, or resentment and resentful thinking. Um, you notice that the element that gets added starts to creep in here is self-view. I am. How many times do we hear that voice inwardly that says, I am. I am anxious. I'm an anxious person. I've always been an anxious person. You know? I am so aversive. I've always been an aversive person. I come from lineages of aversive people. You know? I will always be an aversive person. You know? We can start to see the view arising, and it's really important to listen carefully inwardly to that view arising because it is a construction and not a truth. It's a conclusion, but not a reality. It is, it is a built conclusion, superimposed upon a process, which if we allow it with mindfulness, is simply continuing to unfold. Really to listen carefully to those, those views... Wittgenstein put it, he says, words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. Think, Think of that in our experience. We have the words, I am, you are. They are delivering to us a picture of how things are. And we become a captive without awareness or investigation. We become a captive of that picture. It becomes frozen, fixed in time, an enduring reality with often no sense of a possibility of change. That is applied inwardly, it is often applied outwardly. So the Satipatthana Sutta, the teaching of insight, very much encourages us to investigate our emotional world, to investigate the states, emotional states, psychological states, the weather systems that move through us through our day, to be carefully mindful of them to look into them more clearly, to see the process of them. I think part of that is, for me, part of it is developing a kind of emotional literacy. You know, we need to have an emotional literacy, a languaging, for what we're actually experiencing. And, of course, it's very helpful when we wake up enough to be actually able to discern what is actually going on inwardly. But there's something about knowing that sadness is happening. Oh, anxiety is happening. Aversion is happening. Mm? Kindness is happening. Calmness is happening. Not the I am, which is really rather unhelpful, but to develop that kind of literacy inwardly, to know the mind of the moment, to know the heart of the moment. This is already, I would suggest, a step into freedom. The moment that we take away the I am, or the you are, or this is, we're actually taking a step into process, and we're taking a step into a considerably greater freedom than the contractedness 
of conclusions. So developing that literacy inwardly, I think, is really, really, really useful. It doesn't mean kind of sitting on top of our, our emotional life, you know, and trying to pin everything t- down. Sometimes we just don't know. You know, and sometimes, of course, emotional states can be quite, you know, multi-textured. There can be agitation and aversion or agitation and anxiety all kind of interwoven together. So it's not becoming fixated on being able to name everything and label everything, but to stand close enough, to stand near enough to our emotional life, our psychological life, and begin to spot the weather patterns. Ah, this is happening. This is arising. This is present. I think the second step in around emotional states and psychological states is to very much have this discerning quality. You know, mindfulness is not a kind of passive endurance of everything that arises. There is a quality of discernment here, which I think is part of the whole process of understanding. But it's a simple process. Because it's not in the realm of judgment, of good or bad or right or wrong, but it's actually discerning what is helpful and what is unhelpful. So think of, think of aversion. Anybody would like to volunteer that this is a really helpful emotional state that has good outcomes, you know. Um, actually, we've been there quite a few times. We sort of know its outcome. We, we kind of know the sort of damage it can do to ourselves, you know, the kind of limiting effect of it. We know it's unhelpful. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It's simply unhelpful. When you look at spaciousness or calmness or stillness, I mean, most of us would not volunteer to say, you know, this is really, really unhelpful states of mind. Most of us would say, ah, very helpful. And actually we know its outcome. Having this discerning quality, I think, is particularly important because it helps us to know how to respond to states of mind and emotional states. To bear in mind that the only constancy that emotional or psychological states have is the constancy that is given to them through the feeding process. If emotional states and mental states are not fed with thought, with dwelling, with clinging, they will arise and pass like any other weather system. So part of this discernment quality is actually really having then a question of what is being fed and what can be cultivated. So much of our (coughs) feeding process, of course, of emotional states tends without mindfulness to live in the world of being fairly automatic. (coughs) Excuse me. So we're trying to bring that automatic feeding into something much more mindful and much more wakeful. To know that in the midst of aversion, when we see the thoughts spinning, actually it might be helpful to come to the body, to go somewhere where the aversion is not touching, listening, spaciousness, to cultivate metta. It's a kind of... This is not sort of manipulation of experience, but it is withdrawing our consent from habitual patterns of dwelling that actually do nothing but create suffering. So in a way, it's withdrawing our consent from being a participant in the creating and recreating of dukkha, moment to moment. 
So the discernment is very helpful because it helps us to see, helps us discern moment to moment, and this really is a moment to moment practice, what is helpful to really find the ways to relinquish and bring more space into, what is really helpful to cultivate. We learn to pick up the clues of mental states. I think this is part of the job of mindfulness, is to pick up the clues of mental states. Sometimes we see it in the body very easily, you know, if if we find ourselves rushing down the hallway and yet simultaneously trying to read the instructions on the fire extinguisher, we can be pretty sure this is a clue. You know, there's a lot of agitation present. You know, if if we find that the body feels very tight and very contracted, you know, very tense, it's a pretty big clue about there's a mental state that needs understanding, needs, needs meeting with mindfulness. So sometimes the clues are in the body similarly with very helpful mental states. You notice how the body softens, the body relaxes. Sometimes the parameters of the body feel far less solid. So there are clues within all of our states of mind. Sometimes the clues are in our, uh, many times the clues are in our thought patterns. If you see continuity in a thought pattern, an emotional continuity in a thought pattern, you know there is a state of mind present. You know, if I've gone from, you know, figuring out what's wrong with the sound of the bell to figuring out what's wrong with the entire world, you know, we, it is a big clue in these emotionally continuous thought patterns. There is a state of mind there, and it's really helpful if we can actually come into the body, if we can step underneath the thought patterns and actually ask, well, what is the state of my mind? It's the state of my mind. This is one of the great teachings of, of Shantideva, you know, my poet of compassion. You know, he says, in every moment, whether walking or standing, sitting, lying down, to pause and to ask myself, what is the state of my mind? What is the state of my heart in this moment? Because this becomes such a guiding, a guiding kind of light of responsiveness to be able to ask, what does this need? What is helpful? And of course, sometimes, you know, in the body we find ourselves avoiding, you know, avoiding this, avoiding that. We may become to the person, you know, who you know, never eats in the dining room, you know, the person never goes in the walking room, you know, and it's often indicative of what we, of states of mind that are present. We also ask the question, what is being practiced? What is being cultivated in this moment? What is being practiced? What is cultivated? Now, much of insight practice, and in fact, much of the entire path of awakening is actually really dedicated to cultivating skillful, helpful, wholesome, liberating states of mind, emotional states. You know, if we think of the Brahma-viharas, if we think of the ways in which this path really presents a, a path of possibility, a very profound calmness, very profound spaciousness and stillness. It's an encouragement to cultivate helpful and awakening emotions, mental states that lead to the end of suffering. 
And of course, these helpful emotional states, they really also have the effect of cutting through the constructions and the proliferations. But this is, in truth, really a present moment practice. It is also a question of how do we liberate the moment? How do we liberate the heart from the grip of the unhelpful, from the grip of the unskillful, from the grip of what leads to confusion and suffering? How do we liberate the heart and liberate the moment to actually really deepen in all that is really helpful and skillful and awakening? And it's a present moment practice of liberating the moment, of awakening the moment. Clearly our great ally in this is mindfulness. To be here, to pay attention inwardly, to learn to listen inwardly. Listen to the life of our body, but also so much of the training in in insight practice of attention, of, of mindfulness, of present moment recollection is a training in learning how to listen to the heart, how to listen to the mind, and to know for ourselves moment to moment what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering and distress. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.